Hi there, welcome to the Raising Cinephiles podcast, a show about passing on your love of cinema to the next generation. I'm your host, Jessica Cantor, and I have worked in all facets of the entertainment industry for the last 20 years, and recently became a mom. This week, our guest is John Wyatt. He is the founder of Cinespia, which is an outdoor film series that takes place at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. If you're not familiar, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery is where some of the film luminaries are buried, and Cinespia is truly one of the best film-going experiences in Los Angeles. Always remember that myself and guests are speaking from personal experience, not giving parenting advice. Let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Raising Cinephiles podcast. This is your host, Jessica Cantor. I am here today with John Wyatt, the founder behind Cinespia, one of the most magical movie watching experiences in Los Angeles. And I am really excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. So my first question, what is your first movie memory? My first movie memory actually is King Kong. And I was really scared and elated, but I remember being like pretty scared and I was like pretty horrified and very emotional. <laughs> How old do you think you were? Oh, geez. I must have been maybe three, maybe. Because I do remember also seeing Winnie the Pooh shortly thereafter. And that was the experience I remember learning about being in a movie theater and sort of movie theater etiquette. King Kong, I just remember. <laughs> King Kong eating people and dinosaurs fighting. And I just remember King Kong very distinctly. <laughs> Do you have older siblings? I have one older sister. And then later on, I had older stepbrothers. So lots of siblings. There's a theme that pops up that the youngest of siblings tend to go to inappropriate films for their age level because they're tagging along with their older siblings. That's why I ask. Yeah, I definitely had that as well. This was something my parents took me to. So my parents did take me to a lot of revival cinema around Los Angeles. So I ended up seeing a lot of really old classic films. And then there also was a second run theater in my neighborhood. Now it's gone long gone, but they would do second run and things like when Disney would re-release an animated classic, I would come there. So I had this sort of mixture of old movies, kind of stale second run like movies. And then I did see brand new movies too, and have a lot of very vivid memories of seeing things on opening weekend in Westwood Village. We weren't far from Westwood. A lot of movie theaters there when I was growing up. And my mom taught at UCLA for a while, lived in Westwood briefly. And so my parents, some for some reason, liked Westwood a lot. And we'd see a lot of movies there. Lost Ark opening weekend. I had no interest. I was very set on seeing Clash of the Titans, which opened the same weekend. And I was very much like, well, I don't want to see this movie with this guy with a hat and he's all dusty with this old hat i'm like what is this and then we stood in a line this was at the man national which was a gorgeous movie palace in westwood village that's been torn down and they do a giant like three-story mural for every opening movie on the side of this building and there was a giant 
Raiders of the Lost Ark mural. I was kind of looking at the mural. I was looking at the line. I thought, geez, this is really popular. What is this exactly? And then, of course, the movie proceeded to blow my mind. And if I'm being honest, really, that's the film that made me excited about films in general. It made me excited about archaeology and like filmmaking and just all of it. But my parents were pretty good at taking me and my sister to a lot of films. They were, my parents were in New York right when, in the early 60s, late 50s, right when all the European movies were coming over and were really popular. So although they weren't really like big cinephiles, they had a pretty good appreciation for older films and foreign films. So I really was lucky. And LA had places like the New Art Theater, which showed back then when I was in the 70s and 80s, would show classic films, double feature, and it would change every couple days. So they would take me to see a lot of things there. And things like The 400 Blows was another one I remember really distinctly as a child seeing that. And could you read when you saw it? Or did you just kind of have to figure it out by the images? And Oh, no, I could read by okay. then. So that was, but I was probably his age of the character. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting that my mom chose to take me to that. Because I didn't totally understand it. But I did, of course, because I was that age. So I kind of did on a certain level. I really puzzled over the ending, trying to understand the ending, which ends with a freeze frame on his face looking straight at the camera. But, yeah, I think that really had a deep effect on me. I was ready to kind of take on, like, challenging movies, I think, early on because of watching that in particular. And then my dad took me to Blade Runner, because I was very into Harrison Ford. And so I got to see Blade Runner as a young child, <laughs> which also was like, by turns, traumatic and like really opened my eyes to like what a movie could be. I was obsessed with Blade Runner as a kid and came obsessed with Philip K. Dick, the writer of Blade Runner, the original book. So did you choose the films you wanted to go to with your parents or did they help curate? It was kind of a mixture, but no, they would choose them. I mean, I kind of was begging to see Blade Runner because Harrison Ford was in it. Obviously, I was into Star Wars, and I really liked Raiders of the Lost Ark, as I mentioned. So, like, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, I was like, gotta see this. It's a very violent movie. It's disturbing. Lots of, I guess, adult themes. And even as an adult, it's kind of hard to totally understand. Of course, when I saw it then, it had the voiceover, and it was not the director's cut, so I guess I saw the original ending. Didn't really think about that. But yeah, it had a voiceover, and we didn't think about that as being silly or weird. I mean, we loved that movie, and my dad loved it a lot, and it was a bomb. No one was talking about it. And I was a big reader, so that had me I was curious about the author and that started me reading Philip K Dick and I even bought a little car it was the Blade Runner car and they had like they were trying to do action figure 
Star Wars style marketing for Blade Runner. I swear this is true. <laughs> and I had a little car that was his little Blade Runner car. It was like a Matchbox car. I really, I don't know if I still have that, but that is, I would love to see that again. And I started reading Philip K. Dick, which is really adult and can definitely inspire and twist young minds. Mm -hmm. But so my parents were, they loved movies. They weren't like big movie buffs, but they really wanted me to see a lot of different stuff. And I should mention my mother is a, a college professor. She taught comparative literature and is a writer, a published writer, and is was very anti-TV. So I grew up in one of those households with no TV. And so movies were really exciting for me. Although I would go over to the neighbors and watch TV, and like, like would just feast on TV. Unfortunately, now I agree with my mom, but movies were so exciting to me because of my limited entertainment. And when the logo would come up or the curtains would part or the lights would go down, I would just be beside myself with excitement, mm -hmm. watching trailers, so excited. I would look at the paper, look at what's coming out. Like my favorite thing was when the LA Times would do like a spread, like here's all the summer blockbusters that are coming out. I would like cut them out and stuff. I was like very, really excited to do. Sorry, my cat is entering the picture here. We've had cats on before, some meowing <laughs> in the background. So as you became a teenager, what was the viewing going with your friends? Did you find a community around the type of content you liked? Yes, definitely me and my pals were big movie fanatics. And sometimes I think about how sophisticated we were. <laughs> a lot of that is from a teach very influential teacher at my high school. And I think in as you do this podcast for years, this name will come up for you again. But the teacher's name was Jim Hosney. And he taught at Crossroads and also American Film Institute. And between those two institutions, he inspired generations of filmmakers writers, actors. He was just a, one of those teachers who just resonates through a city, through a population. I mean, he's really enthusiastic person who would really push the boundaries of what young people should watch and how to analyze, how to look at a film, how to not just be carried away by it, but look at maybe some subtext or some underpinnings that could tell you a whole other story. And he showed us some really challenging things when we were 14, 15 years old. And me and my friends had kind of, we started out as these like cinephiles and then got this, I would say college, grad school education early on from this incredible teacher. And also taught a filmmaking class one year. We got to make our own films and stuff as well. But a lot of it was just um, watching classic films from Europe and the United States. 
And he was just a really incredible teacher. He's retired now. And you'll find many people across LA and beyond who bring him up as a, an influence and an inspiration. So when I think back at the films we were seeing, you know, the mid 80s was like a very exciting time for cinema, I think. And one of my pastimes is to think, geez, that independent film from Hong Kong was so popular and it was had box office success and everyone talked about it and no one talks about it now. I wonder if it's good. And I go and seek these things out. That's one of my little exercises that I do when I think about films. And sometimes they do swing back around. Like an example was Tampopo. I thought, geez, whatever happened to that film? It was so great. Probably plays great. And we ended up doing a little screening of it at a nonprofit. And it was great. It was fun. And we served noodles. We had a blast. So I'm really, like, thankful that I, like, obsessively watched movies as a kid. And it was also the 80s latchkey kids. We were on the public buses, going around L.A., going to different places and watching movies. So we kind of had a weird freedom. And and also, it was pretty easy to go see movies, probably like we should have had a guardian or parent with us. But so that happened too. But like, like I distinctly remember seeing things like Manhunter with my friend who's now a filmmaker and a writer and makes a lot of TV and movies. And Manhunter really blew our minds it was so sophisticated and smart and we had no idea that we loved it. We were like, wow. We had no idea that the filmmaker, Michael Mann would become one of the greatest filmmakers of his generation. We were just like, wow, that was cool. I kind of had all these great things coming together for me. My parents taking me to films, this incredible film teacher, just dozens and dozens of movie theaters everywhere all over Los Angeles playing new movies, old movies, and this kind of like freedom of the late 70s, 80s, where kids could just kind of, where we were just on our own, basically, roaming the city. <laughs> and those things all together just really formed my passion for showing films. Yeah. Just trying to share films with people, being like, have you seen this? You need to see this right now. Was there a moment that you can remember where you were like, I am definitely going to work in this industry? I was definitely one of those people, like in quotes, all capitals, I was a teenage filmmaker, like Robert Rodriguez, Steven Spielberg, all these guys made little films as teenagers. And I was definitely obsessed and made some strange films and was... Really excited when I showed one to my class and like there was a surprise and everybody screamed. I was like, ooh, I could be into this. <laughs> I almost, so I was very into like the concept of like making films and that changed for me over the years. And I went to a film, I went to film school at Bard College for a couple of years, which was very focused on avant-garde film and what, what our professors called non-narrative narrative, narrative <laughs> things like that. 
And so I went in a different direction. But that same feeling of getting everyone to cheer or scream, that's really, I think any film programmer will tell you, that's really the juice. That's what you want. Because it, there's nothing more satisfying than something you find, let's say a comedy that you find really funny, playing it for a giant crowd and they're, all the jokes are landing and they're laughing and they're enjoying it and they walk out of there fans of this film going out and saying everybody you gotta check out this movie <laughs> that's like we live for so it's a very similar feeling i think we're living vicariously through these great filmmakers because we get to entertain an audience in a way although we're not doing much compared to the yeah. and ladies I loved hearing about when I worked for Sundance, how the reason why they created the festival was that the labs were creating all this amazing work, but it didn't mean anything unless it found an audience. And so the festival was allowing our audiences to connect to the work itself. And so I think it's very similar, like a film is not finished until it finds an audience. Otherwise, it's the whole purpose of it is to be exhibited. Absolutely. And there is a whole world of orphaned films. And it's one of the most interesting, exciting corners of repertory cinema. And there's an orphan film festival and a bunch of people very dedicated to films that never really got to be screened. And I did discover one myself and I'm still trying. <laughs> to get it released, but that might be a subject for another day. Yeah, I saw one, I did a semester in Paris when I was in college at NYU. And I saw this film that I probably understood like 70% of it because I was in France and it was a French film, right? It was called Le Bandu Drugstore. And it was created by, I think, the editor-in-chief of their big newspaper. I want to say La Liberation, but I don't remember 100%. And it took place in the 60s. And the vendor drugstore means like the drugstore gang. They were like a bunch of kids hanging out in the basement of a drugstore. And I just got swept up by the world, the music, and it never came here. I found it on DVD. And I wonder if I saw it again now, if I would feel the same way about it. But that's one that I just, it's, my, it's an orphan film that I just think about a lot. That reminds me, I, I'm, I did see, like, I saw a film as a child. It made such an impression on me. And I would always ask my mom about it. And she remembers seeing it and remembers, like, the imagery that I described. They were in these beautiful sand dunes, and they're just rolling down these sand dunes. And it was just such a beautiful film. And I still, for years, I think maybe about 15 years ago, I found out who it was. And I found out the name of the filmmaker. It's actually a Greek film. I need to go back. You're reminding me that I need to go back and, and track him down again. He's, he's ha he has a moment 10 years ago where like there was a retrospective and stuff. But those films, those childhood haunts, or something that's so interesting to me, where you remember an image from a film. And a lot of this, a lot of times when people talk about childhood haunts, as we term them, 
it's something that traumatized them, like terrified them. But it can go the other way too, where it's something beautiful that you loved, like this Greek film. And it's really fun to track those down and watch them again. I had a film that like just totally traumatized me. And for years I thought it was that movie Zardoz. Mm -hmm. But actually once I was watching like a really bad exploitation, 70s exploitation action film made in the Philippines. And then all of a sudden there was the scene that traumatized me. I'm like, oh, I don't know how I saw that. Actually, Elvira was like big in the 80s. And Elvira would show like old bad horror movies and stuff. Very traumatic. If you were up like past 11 or whatever it was and Elvira came on, like my friend's parents, they were forbidden from watching it and we would secretly watch it and like... And I loved Elvira when I was a kid. And I don't like, I don't remember how and when I saw her. She had her movies too. I remember her movies and I think for a while I got her confused with the Adams Family. <laughs> and mm. then I saw the distinct difference between those two later in life. But She's really funny. And if you watch him now, her commentary is really funny. Considering it was on television <laughs> and... She's just a brilliant person. I, One of my dreams is to have Elvira come and introduce a film at one of the cemetery screenings. I think as a surprise, her coming out and introducing a horror movie would be cool. Yeah. It's hours of work for her to get into costume and to get... It's a commitment yeah. for her to do it for very special occasions. But maybe someday, fingers crossed, because she was a huge part of me and my sister's <laughs> childhood. She really, she really cracked us up. We loved her. Have you ever done a live commentary from someone like that during a screening? Not at Cinespia, but we have done that in the past with comedians in a smaller theater. And that's really fun. And I would love to maybe once try to do that with like a really large crowd. Yeah. Might be difficult, but if done right, that can be really good. Uh, yeah, you could do it like in an utilizing some of the accessibility tools where you can have them in a headset so not everyone has to listen to it, but you can if you want. Oh, that's interesting. Utilize tech for that, have a little have it through the app. That's really interesting. Yeah. Doug Benson, the comedian, used to host these fantastic he called them interruptions. <laughs> where he'd get other comedians to come and they would talk over. Usually it was like a brand new Hollywood movie. <laughs> this is really amusing. They don't have but, DVD notes anymore like they did for a while. So you could almost have the filmmakers come in like explaining shots and scenes live. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, you know, what's interesting about Cinesphia is that we get tons of people who are younger and have never seen the films we're showing, which a lot of people who are into film are like, what, come on. But it's very real. <laughs> Every once in a while I'll say, oh, and who's never seen The Shining before? And half the audience will raise their hands. A lot of that is because we get lots of teens, teenagers at Cinesphia. And for someone my age, would seem impossible that they hadn't seen The Shining. The Shining is very old, 43 years old at this point. So you can't see everything, right? No, and, um, and it's not going to show up in the algorithms for them. Maybe not. I don't know. But it's really fun because 
The Shining, for instance, still really has the power to blow minds. Oh my gosh, I'm mean, seeing it in a cemetery would just be easy. People, yeah, it really changes it, and it puts these movies. I feel like it puts their best foot forward. That can go the other way. Something that, let's say, is dated now, especially something that's like, like what we would call unacceptable these days, like something that some kind of slur or maybe like a comment or a character, like it's an audience these days will destroy that. Like I've been hearing mixed about showing my son the Goonies. Oh, geez, what? Because it's like there's a man tied up in a basement in a way that's really not accept- acceptable. Like, I hope that's not the case. And the gender because... roles in that. I, like, I haven't rewatched it in a lot of years, and I haven't thought about it through any of those lenses, but I speak to a lot of parents of different age mm. children, and I've heard twice now that there needs to be a discussion around that film when you show it to your kids. Wow. Which, I mean, I still have very fond thoughts of the Goonies from when I was a kid. That film was... There is held captive. Yeah. Anyways, I agree. I need to watch it again and look at it in that light because it's been a while, but it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to watch it to see it for myself. But you do have to look at these things through today's lens, not just because of that I feel like but because audiences are smart when I do show an older film it's really got to be something that moves along quick that grabs its audience that's intelligent that's modern in any age great film filmmakers and great filmmaking great films they all have that mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to avoid a lot of things that don't play well these days what's difficult if is if there's like a scene or a character it can ruin the whole film and so generally these days we just don't show that film because distracting for instance say breakfast at tiffany's has this horrible racist character yeah. it's just when i was in paris it was a while ago they would screen breakfast at Tiffany's every Sunday at this one little theater, which I couldn't tell you where it was in Paris. And I remember just wanting to hear English, to sit in the theater and like, I was feeling a little overwhelmed. And it was a lot of grandfathers and their kids taking them to see breakfast at Tiffany's. And the cinephile culture in Paris is supreme. And I remember thinking, wow, why doesn't this happen in America? I mean, now it wouldn't happen because of the things that you're saying, but like having an older generation bring their youngest family members to these classic films that meant so much to them. I feel like that happens a lot at Cinesphere, I'm happy to say. Meaning people bringing kids, a younger generation. I recently ran into this couple and they said, oh, we had our first date. At Cinesphere, I'm like, hey, that's great. And they said, now we're married. I'm like, that's incredible. And then they said, here's our 12-year-old daughter. Now she comes to Cinesphere and watches movies. I was just like blown away. And that makes me feel like, oh, suddenly this is worth all the work if someone 
is really going to be watching the classic film for the first time with us, you know, the thought that maybe the first time they watch The Wizard of Oz, it's going to be a memory that they'll remember the rest of their life. I was outdoors, I was under the stars, there's all these people. <laughs> yeah, I haven't shown my son his first film yet. Uh, and I've shown him some stuff on television, but I don't really believe that was a cinema experience. I'm really saving that whole experience to take him to a really, I want it to feel like an event that he learns the culture of having to sit through and watch a movie. And he definitely can't do that yet. He's still the age of running around and he wouldn't sit on a picnic blanket right now. I'd have to strap him in. <laughs> I'm trying to, when I think about those experiences and what films to show him. And I know there are a few places that have come up on the podcast and Cinespia has been one of them. It's their Vidiots and the new Beverly so far are the three that have come up of like to give a really special experience. But there are so many movies I can't wait to take him to that I want to introduce him to as he gets older. So I keep like wanting to make sure we're promoting and savoring these amazing institutions that are creating <laughs> these just experiences for our kids because you know that I think when I was a teenager and it sounds like you were as well we were able to go with our friends to the movies as a social experience and there isn't that much of that and the programming from mainstream movies is not geared towards kids really I mean Barbie's showing us something different (laughs) that there's an audience for family film yeah I think parents will always be forever thankful for great movies for kids that have great things for adults in them too. And I mean, how precious are those films that can entertain children, entertain adults, and last for generations? We should really cherish those because they're few and far between. I mean, there's plenty of films that would entertain kids and drive adults insane and there's plenty of films that are so strange no child should watch them but they're pretty fun to watch as adults i'm always really excited when something like say the lego movie comes out something really brilliant that can entertain anybody what incredible films and i love this idea as the the parent as the film programmer like how fun And I thought to myself, that's going to be interesting once he doesn't like something you show him and does like something else and starts to form his own film opinions. That will be exciting. Yeah, I ask a lot, like, do you think taste is nature or nurture? I mean, personally, I definitely think it's nurture. I mean, but part of nurture is outside of the parent's purview. There's outside influences. And the human mind is just taking things in from all sides. I mean, my parents knew to take me to Rare's Lost Ark. They knew it was going to be good because they knew it was like the new Steven Spielberg film. (laughs) I was like, that looks really boring and retro. And it's like, he's wearing a 30s hat. But they knew that I was going to love it. And... I just think that's going to be a whole lot of fun for you. I'm very jealous. <laughs> At least it's a program for other people's kids. Yeah. But the actor Tom Kenny, who's so brilliant, 
He's the uh, voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, as well as a Mr. Show alumni, just a fantastic comedian and actor. He now has a band, and we did a screening of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, which is just such a great feature film. So funny. So much fun. Especially if you're a fan of the TV show. But we had his 12-piece band come down and perform. They perform R&B and rock and roll songs. <laughs> he is so energetic, so much fun. He got hundreds and hundreds of people up on their feet, dancing in front of the stage. He was running out into the crowd. And he's just such a wonderful man. People had such a great time. He pulled me aside at one point and said, yeah, I've been coming to Cinespia for years. I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a like Mr. Show fanatic. If I'd ever spotted him in my audience, oh, he, I would have been like, he wouldn't have heard the end of it. But I guess he's been coming for years with his wife, who's also Mr. Show alumni and a beautiful, incredible comedian and actor. And I guess their kids have been coming to Cinespia this whole time. They said, my kids were raised on Cinespia. He said the first time... My kids smelled marijuana was at Cinesphere. <laughs> I'm just being honest. That's what he told me. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but it was such a nice thing to hear, especially from someone who I respect so much. And I'm just so glad that I could at least give one night <laughs> where parents know they could bring their kids. Everything's going to be taken care of. Everyone's going to be entertained. Just that I could handle one night for them, set one thing up for them. I just love that yeah. so much. I mean... And this is just such great feedback for me. Yeah. And I note that for parents, it is more like a... Maybe more like a concert than like a regular movie theater going experience. So, for instance, there's a beer and wine bar and there's like a... Since it's outdoors, there's like a smoking section. That's just like a little heads up for everybody in case that doesn't work for them. But, and then there's lots and lots of people. So we get 4,000 people a show. Not everyone loves crowds of that size as well. But I feel like a lot of kids then go to Cinesphere as teenagers. It's a safe thing for them to do. Their parents can send them off and they've, that's ours. They're going to be doing a picnic, jumping in our photo booth, listening to the DJ, eating food with their friends, having a little meal. It's just a whole night, a whole experience. And it's something that's easy for them to do once they're independent enough to go out on their own. Yeah. Can you ever do movies before the sun goes down? Does your screen handle it? No, it's possible these days with the LED screens and things like that. And if anyone wants to step in and for a giant LED screen, I'd be happy to do yeah. a daytime. But it is something that happens a little later because the sun has to be down. So Yeah. The only reason why I ask is because the younger kids have earlier bedtimes. But it would be Definitely. really fun to do like once a year my first movie screening and just like have all the kids of LA come out and see their first movie with their peers and program something that's appropriate for like a three-year-old. <laughs> really good idea. I'm loving the idea. Yeah. Big. Because that's like, you know, 
great idea. I think it would be super fun, even for the three to five, because different parents have different rules about cinema. But I feel like something like that could be really fun. I have been saying this a few times. I may do the red balloon for his second birthday. I think Day at Vidiot as a first movie, but it's a short, so it's not. It cannot be a first feature. Absolutely. Part of my childhood. I saw it at the library. Because back in the day, libraries would rent 16 millimeter films and like roll them. And one of those library prints of the red balloon here at my house. Probably haven't seen it in 20 years too, even though I have this print, but what a great film. <laughs> but I don't know if they still do little film screenings at all, but being able to go to a free screening of films, I thought just so accessible to be able to go to your neighborhood library, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't move here until I was older. I did I grew up in New York City and I do know like I used to go watch old performance films at the Lincoln Center Library when I was in high school, which is very different. They're not cinema as much as just recorded stage. So I'd watch my idol classic Valentin Ballerinas dancing on stage and would be able to spend a lot of time with all sorts of cinema there. I'm pretty sure that still exists. I don't know about their cinemas. Interesting. Well, probably some of your listeners are screaming like, well, it's all streaming now, so why do you have to... But obviously in all of it, curation is now the most important thing. I feel like I need someone to be setting these up for them, to be planning them, and it's way too overwhelming to try to scroll through and find something. Taking kids out for the social experience as well, and as I mentioned, it's when I learned that you cannot talk with the outside voice or any voice in a movie theater. You can't run here and there. I learned the hard way. I got shushed times. But how, how important my movie theater etiquette has been perfect ever since. It's that experience of sharing something, everyone laughing together, everyone maybe gasping or screaming. I think it's just so so important and it's developmentally important it's important socially for us and becoming adults and later on you know it's something that is important for our well-being i think and so i think going to theaters in real life children's days cartoon mornings at new beverly to make it very easy for parents All right, I'm going to ask you my last question. What is the movie I should show my son, and it can be at any age, for him to fall in love with cinema? Such a tough question. (laughs) Growing up now, I want something. I want to answer this so well. And it was a tough one. I'm going to go with The 400 Blows. It was a movie that really changed my life. It introduced me to French cinema. It introduced me to art house cinema and maybe that challenges you a little bit. But at the same time, it was completely accessible to me as, you know, a nine or a 10 year old and understood it completely. And it sort of bridged these worlds for me and made all these connections for me. And let's not forget the adventure and the fun and the independence and the discovery. I think 
and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but I think when he becomes the age of Antoine Duaniel, that's when you should show it to him and you should see it. <laughs> yeah, John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This is so great and I'm so excited for your voyage as a programmer to your son. <laughs> Good luck. If you enjoyed the conversation, please don't forget to like and subscribe. New episodes release every Wednesday. And leave a comment and let me know which movie you think I should show my son. Until next time, take care.